The Bible, uh, for me, is a guidebook. I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's filled with inaccuracies. And you'll see things in there that remind you of yourself, and it'll make you really want to change. You realize that that Bible's not lying to you, but it's telling you truth. Just a storybook written by some people about some character. There's plenty of things that even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life. I personally don't think everything should be taken literally. The Bible? Mm, that's controversial. <laughs> Thank you for asking. The Bible is still here. It, this book is almost 2,000 years old. It still exists for some reason. And to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. Well, huge good morning and welcome to the Compass Church. All of you at 95th Campus, love you. Those of you at Bolingbrook, Wheaton, Hobson, can't wait to study this topic. Is the Bible reliable? Hey, uh, I think all of us, most of us, are guilty sometimes of impulse buying. You know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden you see something, you're like, I can't believe I could have that. It's so shiny. It's so nice. You know, and we find ourselves buying something without any planning to do so. Well, pastors are no different. We do impulse buying too. Actually, pastors are weird in that we sometimes impulse buy on things others wouldn't be interested in. Like, for example, me. I I found this antique bookstore and they had ancient manuscripts of parts of the Bible for sale. And I bought one. Uh, This is a 750-year-old page. Uh, This particular page is my favorite psalm, Psalm 63. Can we go to a picture of it and maybe zoom in even more? As you can tell, it's beautifully Manuscript means by hand. 750 years ago, this is before the printing press existed, so the only way to get copies of a book was by hand. And when I saw the scribal work done with Isaiah 63, I just like, I've got to have it. 150 bucks! I whipped out my credit card and I said, I'm doing it. It's mine. And I feel a little better about spending the money now that I'm using it as a sermon illustration here. So... Well, I know that I'm not the only pastor who has been spontaneously suckered into buying an ancient manuscript. Here's another one. Uh, Let me introduce you to Reverend Joshua Samuel. For many, many, many years, pastored St. Mark's Church in Lodi, New Jersey. And had you attended his church back in the 1950s, you may have seen him just do this, saying, hey, I got a manuscript of the Bible that I want to show you all. Admittedly, his is even more impressive than my own. Here's a picture. His was a whole scroll uh, rather than just a single page. His, mine is made of leather. His is made of leather. His is the entire 24-foot-long scroll of the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters of it. He would tell you the story of how he got it. He was uh, actually Syrian, was born in, in Syria, went to school in Jerusalem. It was while he was in Jerusalem that this peddler came up to him one day and said, hey, want to buy an ancient scroll? And he looked at it. He could read Hebrew. He saw it was Isaiah. And he said, yes. 
and they haggled on price. He bought it for $65. Now, half of what I paid for mine, but nonetheless, after buying it, you know, he stayed in Jerusalem, then he moved to New Jersey where he pastored. He then had it appraised. He had some scholars look at it and and date it, and they did all kinds of specialized scientific dating methods, and they confirmed that it was from 125 B.C. And he's like, oh my. Uh, He started doing some research, and he found out that the oldest copy of the Old Testament outside of his was from 900 A.D. And he's like, Mine happens to be, you know, roughly a thousand years older than any existing copy. Well, he was pretty excited, and from these appraisers, the word started getting out about the existence of this manuscript. Uh, what, what happened was he decided, you know, this thing's really valuable. As much as I love it, I think I'm going to sell it. So he went on the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> that was the only thing he could come up with. And he did a, a little ad in the classified under miscellaneous, ancient Bible scroll for sale. And wouldn't you know, someone bought it. In fact, this someone, you know, the word had gotten out about this scroll and this American was actually a secret representative of the nation of Israel. Uh, who purchased the scroll from Pastor Samuel for $250,000. In today's money, that's equivalent of about two and a half million bucks. And the nation of Israel got it for a steal because it is priceless. It has been called the most precious piece of antiquity in world history. Today it's found in the, the Museum of Israel in a, a special dome. They call it the Shrine of the Book. And this is the great Isaiah scroll. Some of you are like, oh, so this is like the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes, this is the centerpiece of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, when uh, Dr. Or Reverend Samuel was asked, tell us of its origin, He said, well, the guy who sold it to me said he bought it from a kid, a Bedouin. You know, the Bedouins are these nomadic uh, shepherders, and one of these kids had lost a goat, and he went looking for his goat, and he found a cave. He thought the goat was in the cave, scared to go in the cave, so he threw in a rock to scare out the goat if it happened to be in there. No goat, but he heard a crash of pottery, and so he said, I got to check this out. So the kid went in, and he found these old clay vessels. And uh, you should know that there were many, many pieces of ancient scripture found. But the Isaiah scroll is the only one where it's a scroll found in its totality. He brought them to Bethlehem, sold them to this guy who sold them to Reverend Samuel, a New Jersey preacher. Isn't that fascinating? And friends, uh, this precious scroll, the great Isaiah scroll, that is the, the national treasure of the nation of Israel, I believe, will serve us well in providing six pieces of evidences as to why we should trust the Bible, why we can know that the Bible is God's word speaking to us. And so here they are. The first piece Uh, of evidence I want to call preservation. The Bible, a guy said it in that opening video. He said, this book's been around 2,000 years old. 2,000 years. Uh, More than 2,000 years, actually 3,000 years in some cases. 
And that is despite effort to destroy it. In fact, the whole reason the great Isaiah scroll was placed in the jar in the cave was to protect it from those who wanted to destroy it. Back in 70 AD, the community that had all these scrolls was living in the desert outside of Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, the Romans attacked Jerusalem. You may know about this. Wiped out the city, burned it to the ground, destroyed the temple, looted the temple. And these people knew, we've got some precious ancient copies of the Bible, and those Romans will destroy them if they find them. And so they decided to hide them in these caves, hoping no one, the Romans, wouldn't find them. (laughs) Not only did the Romans not find them, nobody found them for 2,000 years. Can you imagine the centuries of people walking by the cave and this precious treasure right there, and it was undiscovered. And because of the arid climate of the desert, these leather scrolls survived. They would have disintegrated in any other climate. But because of it being there, they've lasted this long. And I think God's just smiling, saying, hey, look at the great Isaiah scroll. People may try to destroy it. I preserve the word. Not only did the Romans try, um, do you know that even in the Bible, it describes this evil king of Judah His name was Manasseh, and Manasseh closed down the temple, turned everybody from worship to the true God to idols. In fact, all the scripture was wiped out. No one knew of where a copy of the scripture was until Manasseh's grandson, who was King Josiah, found a copy of the ancient scriptures hidden in the temple. And through that discovery, the scripture was reborn in the people of God. 2,000 B.C., this was during the Greek Empire. Remember Alexander the Great conquered the Mediterranean world? Well, there was a Greek king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus made a law. It says, anybody found possessing the Book of the Covenant was condemned to death by order of the king. This guy was committed to wiping out all copies of the Bible. He failed. In the 4th century A.D., There was a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian who was passionately opposed to Christianity and Judaism, and he made it a law that all copies of the scriptures are to be burned, seeking to rid the Roman Empire and the whole world of the ancient scriptures. He failed. Even more recently, you know, of communist nations making the Bible illegal and burning copies of the scripture. Even in those communist countries, the scriptures flourished secretly. Friends, the Bible is the most successful book in world history. There are six billion copies of the Bible out there. The the second most popular book, which is the Koran of Islam, has 800 million copies. The the Koran's also the second when it comes to amount of languages it's been translated into. The Koran's been translated into 112 languages. The Bible sits in number one with 1,185 languages that it's been translated into. Despite all efforts throughout the centuries of destroying this book, it explodes. It's doing better today than ever before. And I know that this is not proof that it is of divine origin, but it sure makes you say, wow, that's interesting. This book has been attacked and yet is being preserved. Why? At least makes you want to look into this volume a little more, doesn't it? 
In fact, let's look at the next piece of evidence. It's transmission. Not like the part of your car, but rather that the content of the Bible has been transmitted accurately from copy to copy to copy with these handwritten scribes, you know, making those copies. Uh, The great Isaiah scroll proves it. Scholars used to think that the Bible that we have today is most definitely very different from what was originally written, you know, nearly 3,000 years ago in some cases. It's just a nature of human error. I mean, the copies that we had, we knew were copies by, of handwritten copies that were made more copies, and all of these scribes were people, and they're going to make mistakes and changes. And so it was thought like the old game of telephone, remember, where the content changes as it's passed on? Scholars, when they heard about the great Isaiah scroll, they're like, well, this will prove it. The the critical scholars thought that surely this ancient copy of Isaiah as it's published will be vastly different from what we had in 900 AD, much more recent. And to their astonishment, the content was identical variations in spelling or a few words of no theological significance, but everyone marveled when it was revealed that these scribes must have been amazing as they took their job incredibly seriously to vigilantly make sure that every word was copied correctly. And so as a result, we know That today, when you look at your Bible, you can be confident that this reflects what was originally written long ago. The transmission of the content has been successful, as evidenced by the great Isaiah scroll. Okay, here's another. Archaeology. I love archaeology. And one question would be, does archaeology prove the historicity of the accounts, the historical accounts in the Bible? You know, for example, when you look at the Book of Mormon, the sacred scriptures of the Mormon folks, uh, you'll find all of these nations and cities and kings and events. None of them have been archaeologically demonstrated, pointing to the the fictional element of, of this volume. But let's look at the great Isaiah scroll, shall we? And take a look how it compares to archaeology. Let's go to the very first verse of the scroll. That would be Isaiah 1, 1. And here's what Isaiah 1, 1 says. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns, and here are four kings, the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Are there any archaeological evidences for those four kings that supposedly Isaiah uh, prophesied during the reigns of? Let's start with Uzziah. Let's highlight Uzziah. Friends, let me show you a picture of what's called the Uzziah Tablet. 1931, they discovered what is essentially a gravestone in Jerusalem that marks the spot where the bones of this king were buried. In Hebrew, it says, Here lie the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Boom. The man was real. He was the king of Judah. Archaeology has demonstrated it. Uh, Our next slide highlights these two kings. These these are all in order, by the way. Uzziah's son was Jotham. Jotham's son was Ahaz. Well, let me show you what's called the Ahaz seal, or the word is bula. Uh, Here, 
what a, what a bula is, is how they would seal an ancient document. Again, they were scrolls, leather scrolls in the old days, and they would wrap a piece of leather around it, and then they would put a clay button on the piece of leather, sealing it. Now, important people like kings and prophets and uh, people who were rulers, they would have a special ring, and on their ring would be an engraving of their family seal. It's like their signature. And when they sealed the document, they would press their ring into the button to put the mark, their sign. Well, when the city of Jerusalem was burned, uh, the, the scrolls were all burned away and the leather straps all burned away, but the fire baked the bula. And so archaeologists find these things in the palace area where these kings lived, where the library, the royal library once existed. In this particular Ahaz uh, Bula dates back to the days the Bible says King Ahaz lived. And sure enough, it says Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah. Both of those guys, historically documented. Well, our next slide shows uh, Hezekiah, the last king. What about him? And for that matter, what about Isaiah? For a long time, there wasn't evidence for these two. Until recently, just wait. If there's not enough evidence, wait. It's new stuff's being discovered by archaeologists all the time. Here are two seals. This one, discovered in 2015, just four years ago. This says, Hezekiah, king of Judah. Uh, this is the Hezekiah seal excavated in the region of where the ancient palace of the kings right in downtown Jerusalem was. And then wouldn't you know last year, this is just months ago, 10 feet away from the Hezekiah seal was discovered this half seal which is engraved and says Isaiah the prophet on it. The first archaeological evidence for the historicity of Isaiah found just months ago. Friends, I could talk endlessly about the archaeological proof that's demonstrated again and again that the people, places, and events recorded in the Bible are fact. Archaeology proves the Bible. Next slide. So what do we got? Preservation, transmission, archaeology. Now let's go to prophecy. Throughout the Bible, there are these predictions that are made of future events that happen brilliantly, crystal clear. The only one who would know about these future events would be God himself. And an example of a prophetic uh, prediction is found in the great Isaiah scroll, specifically chapter 53. Let me just tell you something before I read it. I am, uh, I'm amazed at how so many of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Now, many Jews embrace Christ as Messiah, but admittedly back in Jesus' day as well as today, the majority of the Jews say no to Jesus. And the reason for that is that Jesus does not meet their messianic expectation. They still, to this day, anticipate a Savior King. But what they think of with a savior king is a king who will literally sit on a political throne and save through military conquest. As you know, Jesus came not in political office, but as king of an eternal kingdom that expands beyond the nation of Israel. And his saving wasn't through military conquest, but through death on the cross on behalf of his people. 
Well, that just didn't fit their expectations, so they said no to Jesus. I find that ironic because of Isaiah 53. Some have seen the prophecy of what Jesus would do in Isaiah 53 and seen it match Jesus so well that they assumed that must be a scribal edition that happened after Christianity was formed and infused into the text because it matches so well. Well, now we know for sure that's not the case because the great Isaiah scroll, you know, though written Isaiah originally 700 BC, this copy is from 1025 BC, 125 years before Jesus. And so the Jews, their greatest national treasure in the shrine of the book reads with this description of the Messiah. This is Isaiah 53, verse 2. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a green shoot in dry ground. Really, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't care. And yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But really, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed. He was treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Kind of like a a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. And no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in the midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people, the Lord says. He had done nothing wrong, and that, or he had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone, yet he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, And to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. (laughs) Is that amazing to you? How Jesus, in his ordinary human appearance with no beauty that would draw people to him, rejected by his own people. Uh, Somehow, miraculously, God transferred the guilt of humanity into him, and he was arrested unjustly, treated like a criminal, though he did nothing wrong, whipped and pierced and killed, and then buried in a rich man's tomb, just like the prophecy says, and then resurrected to glorious light of life. Friends, it's just astounding. And this is just one example of the prophecies of Christ. You know, scholars have totaled up 300 predictions about the Messiah that Jesus perfectly fulfills. 
and prophetic utterances from the ancient world fulfilled in Christ and in world events are a powerful evidence that this book has divine authorship. Only God knew those things would happen. And so, as we look at our list, we've got uh, preservation, transmission, archaeology, prophecy, and I have another. Out of the book of Isaiah, we see this theme of consistency. Consistency points to how this book, written over 16 centuries of time, by very different authors. Do you know there are 40 human authors of the Bible? 40 people God used. God spoke to them, they wrote it down. And these authors are so different. Some of them were in high office like kings, other than, other than just uh, fishermen or shepherds. And yet the, the message is one, pointing to the fact that though 50 or 40 authors, really one author behind all of them. This unity of message, I, I see right in the verses we just read. In fact, let me return to two of the verses. Here's verses five and six. This theme uh, described here is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Getting scholarly here. But substitutionary atonement. Atonement is uh, a penalty needs to be paid to fix or pay for a problem. Substitutionary means someone will be a substitute for you. And do you see the substitutionary atonement here? He was pierced for our rebellion. He substituted in our place. He was crushed for our sins. Substitute. He was beaten so we could be made whole. By him paying the price, we are restored. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Somehow this passage says God took our sin and transferred it to the substitute. Friends, this theme of Isaiah was conveyed in the Bible long before and long after. When I say before, you go all the way back to the very beginning. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God's one rule not to eat the fruit, when they rebelled, they suddenly realized they were naked and they were ashamed of what they had done. God intervenes, kills an animal, skins it, and God provided those skins to cover their shame as the first clothes. And uh, what is that? That's the innocent animal has to shed its blood and die so that your shame can be covered. That's substitutionary atonement being alluded to from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system described where people would bring a lamb to the temple and they would lay their hand on it, symbolically transferring their guilt and sin to the innocent animal. And the animal would suffer and die and its blood would shed as it was sacrificed. And the people knew Somehow that innocent third party has taken my place and died to death. I should have died. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus arrives, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And, and, and in the New Testament, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Christ carried our sins in his body on the cross. Same thing Isaiah had said. This is just one example of the consistency found throughout the Bible. Friends, if you've read the book, and I encourage you to do so, you, you will stand amazed, as I do, how there's one story being told. One story of a God who so loves rebellious people. 
and a God who is filled with compassion and a desire to forgive, but a God who's also just, who intervenes in world history and saves the day as a hero rescuer. And through his blood, we find forgiveness and him restoring not only us, but our world. It's a beautiful story, and it's one story told from cover to cover in the Bible. And that consistency is an evidence of the inspiration, the God authorship of the Holy Scriptures. We go back to the outline here, and we have one more that I want to comment on. I call it resonance. Admittedly, this is a little subjective, but yet still very powerful in my life, and I hope in yours. And this is where those who seek to read the Scriptures for an encounter with God find the truth resonating, their heart burning with this this passion, convinced that this has got to be beyond human authorship, but actually divine fingerprints found in it. Jesus spoke of this in John 7, verse 17. He said, those who are really wanting to follow God's ways, one, one could say, those who thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, they will know when they hear the words of God. And uh, I I resonate even with the passage we just read. Let's go back to it here. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. Did you you feel that? Oh, that's God's stuff. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. When I see this description of me, all of us are like sheep, which is not a compliment, by the way. Sheep are very stupid. All of us are like sheep. We've strayed away. We've left God's paths, and we've followed our own. That's me. He's describing my soul and what happens to me so often. It's like God's looking in the window. He knows, and he's calling it out. And then I look at the rescue. This is the most glorious rescue story in the whole world. The maker, it gives free will to the people. They rebel away, but he comes to save the very people who have rebelled against him. He gives his life to save them, and through his death, they are made whole. Friends, this is the most glorious rescue story imaginable. It's so beautiful, it's got to be true. And when I read this story of what theologians call the gospel message, I am just, yes, yes, this is true. So often when I read the Bible, I have this sense that this content is not of human origin, but from God himself. Here's an example, maybe a silly example. This week, Tuesday, I went down in the dungeon of our house. We have a basement, and in the dungeon of our house, there's a torture machine called the elliptical. Some of you like exercise. I hate it. All right, and so when I ride the elliptical, I've got an iPad where I can watch Netflix and distract me from the pain. That's the goal there. I watch documentaries or movies, anything to get my mind off what I'm doing. Well, on Tuesday, our internet service is painfully sporadic, and it's, and I'm like, Netflix, I only got this spinning dial. No! distract me. I don't want to feel this, you know. And I couldn't get Netflix to work. Google wasn't working. The only thing on my iPad that worked is the Bible would pop up. And I'm like, all right, Lord, I think you're speaking with pretty good clarity here on what I'm supposed to do. And it just opened the Mark, Gospel of Mark. And so for 40 minutes, I just read through Mark. 
And friends, the first 10 minutes, it hooked me. And the second 10 minutes, I was moved. 30 minutes into reading Mark, my heart was gripped by this fresh encounter with the beauty of Jesus Christ anew. And by 40 minutes, I was a basket case as I had been loved on by Christ, as he had spoken to me through the book again. I had a deep life-altering encounter with God through his book. This type of resonance is something I enjoy fairly regularly, pointing to the divine power behind the book, the divine authorship behind the book. Do you read it? Does God speak to you through it? I know at first it's kind of hard and a little confusing, but those who persevere in the habit of setting aside maybe 10 minutes a day to return to this book, it grows on them. And they begin to hear God again and again. And they know this is his book. Let's go back to the list of these attributes. Evidences. Preservation. The book has lasted through the centuries and millennia, though many have tried to destroy it. Transmission. God has seen to it that the original content written long ago has arrived accurately in our present Bibles. Archaeology demonstrates the book is rock solid historically. Prophecy. 300 predictions about Jesus. He showed them all to be true. Consistency. 40 different authors over 16 centuries all telling one glorious story about one, the same glorious God and resonance. Those who read it, they encounter the fingerprints, the voice, tone of God in his speaking to them through his book. Friends, I hope you're reading it. Maybe you don't have one. If you don't have one, Take one. You know, at all our campuses, we have Bibles stuck in the seat backs. You're not stealing. This is a gift. Take one. We've got plenty to refill. But we want you to have the Bible and meet God in the pages of that book. Build a friendship that will change your life with God through him speaking to you through that book. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for giving us a book. Great idea, God. We love it. And we want to be a church. We want to be a people. We desperately long to be folks who meet you face to face as you speak to us and guide us and teach us about your heart through the Bible. God, give us the confidence that it's your word and the tenacity to study it day after day after day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.